2002, late in 2002, um, my family moved to Lexington, Kentucky so that I could attend seminary. And um, Elizabeth, our eldest daughter, uh, was about uh, two at the time. And uh, she's not here this morning, so I can tell this story. Uh, She was about two years old at the time, and uh, um, there was some adjustment there because when you move from a northern state like Michigan to central Kentucky, there's a bit of a culture shock. So over a period of time, um, we assimilated into the life of the, of the graduate school community, and my wife found a, a group of, of other uh, seminary wives, um, and they liked to scrapbook. Um, some of you know what this is, but uh, it was a, a big thing, certainly back then. Uh, and all of these ladies were pursuing what, what at the time we called PhD degrees. Not PhD, PhT. It stood for putting hubby through. And they would get together and they would have conversations about <clears throat> what their uh, families were going through and whatnot when it came to, <coughs> excuse me, when it came to um, the seminary life. But anyway, they, they would scrapbook uh, periodically together. It was a couple times a month, and there was a, a special uh, place on campus where they would do this. So uh, a couple years into it, um, my wife's birthday was coming up, and I asked her, I said, what, what do you want to do for your birthday? And she goes, I just want a scrapbook. And you know, it wasn't like she got a whole lot of time to do it and every now and then. And so I called one of her friends who I knew was part of this, and we got it all set up for her birthday. She was going to do this big scrapbooking thing. And I said, you know, don't tell her, but I'm going to go ahead and, and get cake and ice cream and that kind of stuff. And oh, great. And I think they were going to do dinner for her. And and so, I don't know, there's like five, six, maybe, maybe ten women that would show up, depending on, you know, what time of the month it was uh, as far as uh, schedules were concerned and whatnot. And so, consequently, um, we uh, were uh, getting this party ready, and I drove past a bakery. And I thought to myself, there is no way that I'm going to bake a cake with, uh, at the time, four- or five-year-old in the house you know, I'm just too busy, and let's be honest, there's a reason why my wife cooks, and I don't, okay? I mean, let's, you know, there, I confess, now I, I can preach, and, and uh, so I went, and I, I ordered a cake. <clears throat> so what I did is, on the day of the event, um, I had to pick up the cake, I think by like four o'clock, and since I was going to be on dad duty that night, I, I grabbed Elizabeth, who I think was four or five at the time, and I said, okay, dad's got to go pick up the cake for mom, Okay, this is a surprise. You're going to come with me, right? Okay. Now, cake and ice cream to a four-year-old is like crack, okay? And you can tell that they're excited about it because they actually quiver. Have you ever seen a child quiver with excitement? Okay, and you've seen my daughter Elizabeth, right? I mean, she's constantly, you know, four or five years old, and she just, anyway. So... (laughs) I said, okay, we're getting ready to go to the car. Don't say anything to mom because we're going to go pick up the cake. Yes. Okay. Now, it's a surprise, right? Yes, it's a surprise. Do we tell mom? No, we don't tell mom. No, she says with me. Okay, so we're going to go and we're going to go get the cake. And we're gonna, so we get in the car. You know where this is going, don't you? Yeah. 
So we, we get in the car and we go to the bakery and she's just, she's just all excited about this, this cake that we're getting. And it was really kind of a, kind of a cool cake too. In fact, it kind of looked like this one a little bit. There's some fruit on top, so you know that I didn't eat it. But anyway, the, there, there's, there's this beautiful cake and it's in the box and she's all excited about it. And, and, and I'm, I'm right there in front of the woman who is selling us the cake. And so I have a witness. She's out there in Kentucky somewhere. I don't know where she is. And I said, now, what is this? It's a surprise for mommy. Do we tell mommy about the surprise? No, we don't tell mommy about the surprise. Okay, so we're going to fold this up and we're going to take it home because mom's having a what tonight? She's having a party. And this is going to be a surprise for the party, right? See, I have to do repetition with this, these children, right? So all the way home, same thing. So, so sweetie, are we going to say anything about, about, the, about the birthday cake? No, it's a surprise for mommy. And it's going to be fun, right? Oh, it's going to be so much fun. I cannot, my mouth is watering, Daddy. I didn't even know a four- and five-year-old knew what mouth-watering meant. But she did, and she saw it because it was the cake, and there was ice cream involved, and it was going to be a surprise. So we get into the parking lot of our, of our condominium complex, and... <laughs> I kid you not, I am unbuckling my belt, and I turned back to her, and I said, okay, last time, this is a surprise, right? Right. We're not going to tell mommy, right? Right. Okay. So we get out of the car. We walk up. We are not three steps into the house when I hear my daughter, who is a few steps in front of me, mommy, guess what we've got? <laughs> Children will sell you out for cake and ice cream. You just need to understand that. They do. But have you ever been in one of those sets of circumstances where you're so excited to share something that you thought your head or your heart was going to explode? Have you ever been there? You know, come on, now think back. I mean, cake and ice cream, right? I mean, at the very minimum, you know, these surprises are like, oh, I don't know if I can keep it a secret. It's too exciting. And, you know, whatever it is, we've, we've all kind of been there. Have you ever been so excited that you've actually thought about changing plans because the new information came and i got to do something with it? And, you know, have you been there? Is that a, has that occurred to you? Well, I want to I talk a little bit about that today um, because I, I do think what happens when we get excited about something that's, that's new and fresh and amazing, that we actually change our behavior a little bit. And if you don't believe me, find a young lady who recently got engaged. They start doing funny things with their hands. Hi, how are you? Oh, I don't know. That's amazing. And come on. You know, they're just all about the... And, and, and we kind of laugh and we joke, and then we're like, oh, I don't see a thing, you know, kind of a, but we get all excited about it. And today I want to start a new series because over the last month, we've been talking about the road to the cross. But now after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's another road that we're going to take. It's called the road out of town. And this is um, kind of the aftermath. We're going to explore the aftermath of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're, what we're going to do is we're actually going to return 
to um, Luke chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there with me, or if you've got a Bible app, go ahead and plug that one in. Luke 24, we're going to be at the end of the chapter. And what I want to do is I want to read a very familiar story. I'm going to make some comments as we go along, but then I want to pull something out for your consideration. So that's what I'm up to today, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about excitement and change of plans. So here we are in verse 13 of Luke um, 24. Now, that same day, this is the same day as the resurrection, okay? <clears throat> that same day, two of them, meaning two of the disciples of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, just for context, that's about a two-hour walk, okay? And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, this is big news, obviously. There was a major miracle-performing rabbi who was crucified, and now there are, is some discussion that his body is missing from the tomb. Okay, let's put this in real context here. Let's, let's separate out all of the spiritual side to it and just look at it from, for what it was. The body is missing from the tomb, and the disciples are trying to make sense of it because they have heard from women whose testimony was considered unreliable in that day and age. I'm sorry, ladies, that's just the way it was contextually. And they said that they had seen some angelic-like beings who said, He is risen. So they're trying to make sense of this. Peter goes, he checks it out for himself. He sees evidence that Jesus had been there, but he is no longer there. What are you going to do with that? And so they're talking about this as they're traveling uh, a, a, a ways. And, and the reason for their journey is completely unknown. Uh, maybe they just needed to get out of Dodge for a while as they were trying to process it. Who knows? Um, there's a lot of speculation, and to Luke it doesn't really matter. The point is, is they've got two individuals, they are traveling on this road, and they're talking about the events of the previous few days. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is important because there are other places within the Bible where we find divine beings who kept themselves, their identities hidden from, from the mortals that they were speaking with, okay? So this is not new. This is something that has happened frequently throughout the Bible. So Jesus um, is walking with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And I kind of, in, in like, you know, the David movie that, of this, it's like Jesus walking up, hey guys, what's going on? <laughs> right? What, what you talking about? And he's just casually having this conversation with them. And then notice what, what it says here. It's like they stopped. They stood still, their faces downcast. There's, there's a moment when, um, if you've ever been to a funeral for a loved one, you'll, you'll know this, where you're with a group of people and you're having a discussion about the deceased and you might even be laughing and joking because you're remembering happy times and then somebody says something or there's this pause in the conversation and people realize why we're there. Why are we having this conversation? Our rabbi is dead. They stood still. They stopped walking and their faces were downcast. It's a very emotional scene. It's a very real scene. It's a very human scene that we see here. Hmm. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And I love Jesus' question. What things? <laughs> I just have to believe there's a little grin on his face when he asked that question. <clears throat> 
Now, interestingly enough, this person named Cleopas, um, by tradition, this is a relative of Jesus' father, Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph. Don't know what the um, relationship is. Might have been an uncle or a cousin or something like that, but Cleopas was clearly related to the family. And so he, he asks him, are you the only one um, visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these days? Hmm. And then Cleopas launches into a summary of all of the events that happened. Just a brief summary, a couple of verses long. And he talks about them from a perspective of this is what happened. I'm not sure what to make of it all. There is clear confusion on his part because let's be honest, an empty tomb is a strange thing. It is. It's just odd. Did somebody steal it? If they did, why did they steal it? the body of Jesus? Or is he really alive, as these people have said? Were there angelic beings? How do we put all of this together? Look, folks, these these are real people. They had real questions. They lived real lives. And just because we've read this 500 times doesn't mean that that they, they have. In fact, they hadn't. They were living it out for the first time and trying to sort it out. And so skip down to, to um, verse 25. Jesus says to them, and I love this, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, from a standpoint of literature, this is the pivotal point in the conversation. This is the pivotal verse. This is what changes the course of the discussion. And it's the the point in which Jesus begins to explain the details. Now remember something that when we talked about this last week at Easter Sunday, the angel had to tell the the women that didn't Jesus say he was going to rise from the dead. So, you know, you have all of these events that actually occur. It's easy to forget some of these things. And so Jesus is like, how foolish you are. You're, you're not, you weren't tracking along with him. You didn't remember the things that he said. You know, this is, this is the collective memory, and he's trying to jog it for, the, for the, these people. And so what happens next is that as they approach the village, this is Emmaus, Uh, to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, hospitality is a big deal. Uh, You invite someone, you take care of them, was a great honor for you, as well as an honor your your guest. And so this is a big deal uh, that they asked him to do that. And of course, uh, traveling at night was uh, kind of a dangerous thing. There were no street lamps like we have today, and robbers were usually al- along the road. And so you would, you would have that potential danger when you were, you know, they didn't know it was Jesus, okay? So they invite him in. Now, here's what's interesting. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Oh, now wait a minute. Where have I heard that before? Hmm. Maybe before the arrest? 
But what's fascinating to me is that in ancient Near Eastern culture, it is the host that takes bread, breaks it, gives thanks, and passes it out. And here Jesus assumes that role. Isn't that interesting? Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Okay, now that was just cool, wasn't it? I mean, come on. There he was and then all of a sudden, boom, he's gone. Uh, that would have had to have been pretty amazing to actually see this. But remember, <clears throat> I, I always wondered this, that when Jesus was talking about breaking the bread and his body broken and his blood poured out for people that, you know, before all of the, the, the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion, the disciples had to have been confused by that. And then... Afterwards, there he is breaking it, and there's that moment of realization like, oh, that's what he's talking about. This was that moment, right? This is the moment where it all kind of fell into place, where the puzzle pieces were put together. How amazing is that, I think? Going on, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Hmm. Now, I want you to pick up one particular verse I think is amazing. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They got up and return to Jerusalem at once. This was a big deal. Obviously, there Jesus was, and then he was gone. Okay, so there's this miraculous thing that has occurred. They've already heard the story that the body is missing, that these angelic beings had said something about the risen Lord, and here they believe that they've actually seen him. This is a big deal, and so what do they do? They change their plans. Because they've already arrived at their destination, right? They're sitting down, they're having supper, you know, probably kicking back a little bit, and then this happens, and they immediately change their plan. There's a sense of urgency here. There's, there's an excitement. What, what just happened? And, and not only that, it's a two-hour walk back to Jerusalem, and they're going to risk doing it at night, because remember, they invited him in when it was almost evening. So they knew they were going to get back to Jerusalem while it was, when it was late, and so there was a certain amount of risk to all of this. And yet, that's exactly what they did. They changed their plans. And they went back to tell the story to the other disciples what had occurred. Now, have you ever come across something on Facebook or uh, maybe Twitter or Instagram or something that just really kind of captures your attention? Or maybe there's a song that you heard or a video that you've watched that just kind of puts that lump in your throat. The one that's really uncomfortable and yet whatever it is that you're seeing is very emotional, it's very powerful. And you feel either a a deep sadness or a great joy or or, um, a lot of them happen to be patriotic. Have you noticed that? I don't know why that is, but that's true. Or the feel-good stories where somebody goes out of their way to do something nice for someone else, and we just go warm and fuzzy inside, and, and what's the first thing that we do? We share it. We, we forward that bad boy on. We repost it 
onto our, our Facebook page, or we send it to someone in an email or a text, and we just say, hey, you need to see this. This is an important thing. I, this has really uh, touched me, and I, I'm just going to explode with joy on this one. I need to share this with you. We do this all the time. I know because I'm Facebook friends with most of you, and I've seen the kind of stuff you post on your, on your Facebook page. I understand this. We all do. There is something about it because it means something to us. There's something deep down. that This has just kind of touched a nerve. There's certain pieces of music that just kind of get everybody up and going, and, and it, it's exciting. We want to share it with people. We want other people to notice this too. We got to tell them because we want them to experience the same thing that we have. Isn't that right? You know, it's not that I'm just trying to be nice. It's I've experienced something and I want you to experience the same, same thing. And so here's the point that I want to make today. Here's the thing that I want you to walk out of church remembering, okay? When Jesus does something, share it. Now, hit the pause button because... It's very easy for, for all of us to let this one go in one ear and out the other. Okay? In fact, some of you are probably going, okay, what, what, what's this about? I mean, this is just nice. Okay, yeah, Jesus does something, share it. Let me explain something to you. This is a simple statement, but it is profound. This is a profound thing. When Jesus does something, share it. Here's why it's profound. Are you ready? Because sharing Jesus is how Christianity grows. That's it. Christianity does not grow unless we share stories of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. We get so wrapped up in this this word called evangelism. And when we talk about evangelism, we talk about, you know, helping him make a decision for Christ or say the sinner's prayer or whatever it happens to be. And you know what? As far as it goes, yes. Okay, we want people to, to make decisions to follow Jesus. Yes, my, my own youngest daughter just did it on Easter Eve. It was an amazing thing. It broke my heart. I got a big lump in my throat, and we shared it with all my friends. Okay? So these kinds of things actually do happen. But we take this idea of evangelism, we make it this big event in our minds, and everybody's scared of it because when we talk about evangelism, nobody really wants to do it. And, you know, don't give me the little tracks, Bible tracks that I got to pan. You know what? You're right. It doesn't work. But here's the thing, and I want you to grasp onto this right now because this is the most important thing I could possibly say to you today. This is it. Every bit of evangelism, every bit of decision that was ever made for Jesus all started at the exact same point. Do you want to know what it is? This is what Jesus did for me. That's it. That's evangelism right there. It's not, you know, forcing you or yanking you into heaven or that kind of thing. It's just saying, hey, look, I don't know what this means to you, but here's what Jesus did for me. That's the single most powerful origin of all evangelism ever. Are you with me on that? So when I, when I stop and I say something very simple like, when Jesus does something, share it. I'm not giving you a nice platitude. I am telling you this is the only way Christianity actually grows. 
This is the only way that salvation goes from one person to the next. This is the only way hope and healing and reconciliation and all of those things that we want for people around us happen is when we share the story of how it happened to us. So don't let this one go in one ear and write out the other one. Take this one, let it sink in and go, oh, wait a second. What has Jesus done that I can actually share with someone else? Hmm. They all start at the same point. All of it. Because when you share your story with Jesus, not just the story, but when you share your story with Jesus, whatever it happens to be, how big or how small that that is, there's a couple things that actually occur. The first one is that it builds faith. You know, because if you think about it, your experience with Jesus, a person who's hearing this for the first time, uh, might look at your set of circumstances, that event in your life, your blessing, your miracle, whatever it happens to be, and they, they say to this, themselves, first and foremost, oh, that can happen. It, it is possible. And, and then secondly, it instills a certain amount of hope. Think about that for a moment. Because if God did that for that particular individual, then, then my circumstances matter to God too. Do you see that? All of a sudden, now it's not just something that happens out there. It is something that is possible for me as an individual. Now, although it may work out completely differently for that particular person, but the point is that there's hope, that God is there, God cares, and God will act. Because he did it for you. And I think also, um, when, you, when, you, when you talk about what, what Jesus has done for you, it becomes part of a collective story that God is trying to tell through a group of people. Look, I'm going to tell you this right now. It's, there's no accident that we're all gathered here. There's a reason why God brought us together. There's a reason why the, the things that happen at Thrive Church resonate with you. It's because God is doing something that resonates within your soul, and, and there's a collective story that's being told here, and it's growing all the time. More people who are part of this, the story grows just a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's powerful when you see that. Remember when Jesus talked about this idea about a city on a hill? You know, we all have this light, but when you get a group of them together, there's a big city on a hill. That's what happens within the church is that there's this collective story. There's this collective light that we're trying to to shine. And you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to push back the darkness because goodness knows there's a lot of it out there right now. Amen? Come on. I read the newspaper just like you do. And so we have this this collective story. And what I noticed is is that it confirms things because very often, and maybe this has happened to you, I'm telling somebody uh, a story about something, well, you're not going to believe this. And they're like, wait a second. And they've got another part of the story. And there's parallel to it or there's crossover or overlap or something along those lines. And you both sit there kind of amazed going, what is God trying to do here? Pastor Dan and I were just talking about this last week. There's uh, uh, something that, a little project that we're working on, and he's got a personal project, and all of a sudden those two things are beginning to overlap, and he's going, I don't know what God's doing here. And I'm like, neither do I, but this is kind of fun, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a lot of fun. But it becomes this collective story that we're all telling. And let me tell you how powerful that is. Several years ago, I was pastoring at another church um, up in Wisconsin, and there was a woman who uh, would come and visit. Um, it wasn't very often. Um, every few weeks or so, uh, she would come, her work schedule, and she would, um, 
she would come and she would really enjoy service because we were a real casual kind of church and she had grown up in a very formal type of an environment. And one day I asked her, I said, hey, how are you doing? And she started to cry. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I say? You know, kind of a thing. And, and she began to tell me about a particular issue that she was, she was working through. And I said to her, you're not going to believe this, but I know two women who you could talk to right now who have gone through that same thing. And she said, really? And I said, yeah, would it be okay if I, if I introduced you? She said, yeah, I would like that very much. And so I went and I grabbed these two women that I knew, and I gave them just a brief sketch of what was going on. And they took um, this third person off to the side, and they talked with her for half hour, 45 minutes, and they prayed with her. And here's the beautiful part of that. I could not have invited other people into ministry had I not known those, the stories of those two women. Do you see the power of a collective story? I get to talk to people all the time, and some of you have been with me on those journeys where I've said, oh, by the way, I know somebody, and I've introduced the two of you, and, and you've you know, had those conversations. That is what I mean when I say, when Jesus does something, share it. I need to know what he's done in your life because I guarantee you I will find somebody else who's wrestling with the same crappy thing that you did. And that person needs you to reach out your hand because that's how God's economy works. God never wastes tragedy. You go through it so that you're in a position to help somebody else out through it, always. That's how God works over and over again. So here's my challenge for you this week. And it's really, really simple. And it's really, really uncomfortable. Just going to share that with you. I want you to look for a way to share how God has worked in your life with one person. Now, let me hit the pause button again for just one second. Because I'm sure, especially in this town, there's a lot of folks out there who everything is amen this, you know, praise God that, and, you know, that's just how they're wired. That's cool. Have you met that kind of person? I'm too blessed to be stressed. And, that, and they're just, you know, praise God. And, I, and that, that's fine. That, that's great. I don't do that part well. That makes me a little uncomfortable. And so if that's you, you don't have to be kind of, you know, in your face kind of a thing. But rather, for me, and this is what works for me, is just to have that conversation and go, you know, here's what my experience is. I don't know about you, but the only way I can explain that is God did something. And just leave it out there. I'm pointing out where God may have done some work. I am sharing the story of Jesus. This is how I'm interpreting it. I'm going to leave that for you to do whatever you want with. But that's what I'm talking about. It's those simple stories sharing how Jesus worked in your life. That's it. Or how God is moving or something or has moved or you know, I'm not really sure about that, but I think that might be God. The most wonderful conversations I've ever had is when somebody's telling me a story and I just kind of pause and go, hey, could that maybe the hand of the divine? That, you know, God might be up to something there? And the kind of a look on their face, which I totally love, by the way, <laughs> is when they kind of give you that, you know, I've grown a second head. <laughs> love that look because they haven't thought about that one before. And then you get that point of saying, you know, here's what, here's what my experience is. 
And when God moves, this is kind of how I feel about it. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? You know, just something along those lines. It doesn't have to be a, a big deal, but the thing that I want you to remember is you have no idea what the Holy Spirit is already doing in that person's life. And your simple five, ten words, couple of sentences, short paragraph, whatever it happens to be, may be impacting them on a level, and you had no clue. And you may never know. That's not the point. Your job is to, when Jesus does something, share it. And let him sort that part out. Not that you're trying to offend them or put them off, but just trying to make that, that common ground to them and, and see where the Holy Spirit takes that. Pray for that opportunity. But please understand, that is a dangerous prayer. 